It is now season two. I'm very excited for it. Yes, yes. Now things are a little bit different. Uh, this season is going to be me and mom. And I want to introduce mom as someone who keeps her house so clean and spotless, even Dalmatians are afraid to come to visit. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do. I admit I do like a clean house. Um, that's all I'm going to say because I know it's going to be followed by some kind of remark. <laughs> but yes, this is season two. And I'm so happy to be here. I love doing this with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I do, too. And uh, for those that maybe will start listening season two, uh, our podcast is a little bit different because we discuss only uh, crimes or cases where we can offer help. So where we can look at maybe some safety things, some um, behavior of predators, you know, things like that to help people. We do have our mini-series, which is more just generalized crime, usually themed. But this season, we've got some really, really good cases. And we need to dive in. But first, we're introducing a new thing. I can't wait. Can I say or do you want to say? You go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. So Sherry brought this Stella... Rosa. Rosa wine black. is called black, and we're mm-hmm. going to try it, mm-hmm. but she wouldn't let me drink it until... Yes, because I want to know what you think, because you're a wine sissy. I am a wine sissy. <laughs> it has to taste sweet, because I don't like the taste of alcohol. I know that makes no sense, but that's right. just how I am. All right. So okay. go ahead and get okay. a drink. Let's see what you think. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. And what it's do you so think? good. Isn't it's it very good? good? Okay, let me get a drink of mine. It's my favorite so far. Mm, yeah, it's my favorite. That is good. All right, so we're going to have our wine, our true crime. More than two decades ago, a young mom disappeared. There has always been suspicions that her husband was responsible. Now, all these years later, he is on trial after his son discovered his mother's body buried in their backyard. Now the son is taking the witness stand, testifying against his father. Stephen Fabian reports. It's a gripping murder trial. A son testifying against his own father, who he believes killed his mother 26 years ago. Aaron Frazier was just three years old in 1993 when his mom, Bonnie, disappeared from their Jacksonville, Florida home. Anchorwoman Mary Bear of WJXT-TV covered the story in 1993. She remembers at the time thinking something was wrong with the father's story. What I remember most about um, the interaction I had with him was that he brought his son out during the interview and asked him, where's mommy? Aaron, where's mommy? Aaron's response was poignant. I remember coming in the newsroom and just thinking it just seemed a little almost chilling. It was just something wasn't right. Did three-year-old Aaron see his father murder his mother? According to police, the little boy said, Daddy hurt Mommy. The father, Michael Haim, became a suspect, but his wife's body was never found and no charges were ever filed. The years passed. Little Aaron grew into manhood, but he never forgot and he never let up. He won a wrongful death lawsuit against his dad and was awarded possession of the family home. In 2014, he was removing the outdoor shower when he made a gruesome discovery, skeletal remains. Do you believe that you had found your 
biological mother at that point? Yes. We weren't sure exactly what to do. We didn't know whether to call 911. A DNA test confirmed it was Aaron's mom. Michael Haim was arrested for his wife's slaying. Mr. Haim, did you kill your wife? It was haunting to me that I was sitting there talking with him and trying to help. It's possible that while I was sitting there, that she was out in the yard, buried. It's such a heartbreaking case. Uh, we call this podcast a smart true crime podcast because it goes into the why. And you did, you know, there's a few people at work and that I know that have listened mm-hmm. truthfully and said um, the last one. It was our first. Yeah. But there was a lot of awareness for women. Yes. Being alienated. And uh, they knew some people that had had that happen to them. Had yes. they known the signs that you had brought up? Yes. On some of those podcasts, they might not have had the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, this one is uh, on Bonnie Heim. When I was thinking about the last season... You know, like the the teenage girls that gave that man a ride. Right. You know, um, just the the sweetness of a lot of the victims, like the Dirty John lady. Naive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Believing the best about people and not recognizing red flags. And people are very manipulative. You know, the people that do this, uh, they're very good at what they do. And you don't have to be a weak woman or dumb or different side of the track it can be anybody smart women have fallen for it yeah because it's a slow process it is it's uh all spectrum all ethnicities all financial uh you know can you know positions i guess you would say in life exactly and so we want to start off with saying you know don't ignore the red flags if if you're in a relationship and you notice like a anger you know that like zero to 90 as far as anger if you notice uh, love bombing where it's like an overwhelming amount of what they call love bombs i mean you, you can look that up if nothing is ever your fault or, or their fault, I'm sorry, like if they always gaslight. These are all signs that we discussed in the, the first season. And so I wanted to start off this season by telling everybody that's listening that know your worth. You know, don't dismiss how you're treated because you think that you deserve to be treated that way. Or, you know, maybe you look down on yourself and the other person's more powerful you know, stronger, you feel like you're weak. Uh, don't and tell somebody. be down on yourself, yeah. Because there's always someone that'll help. I think, Sherry, didn't you last year you put on outlineofamurderpodcast.com different sites women can find? I think it's still there, right? Yes, and men, actually. And men, oh yeah, men too, just because you're a woman, on a child, man. men, nobody can escape it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they um, will have resources uh, there now and then also for military, because military, it's even more difficult uh, sometimes for them to get help. Well, that's true. Yeah. So I've got some resources on there. And so this case today uh, takes us to Jacksonville, Florida. And it's a gorgeous town. It is. Um, So here's a couple pictures of it. So have you been there? Yes. Okay. And the beaches are beautiful. 
Yeah, I mean, it looks absolutely gorgeous. And um, a lot of tourists. Yeah, and it's said in the research that I did that it's 25 miles of beaches. I had no idea. That's, I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, lots of history, arts, and culture. And to me, Florida has some of the most beautiful beaches. I've been to like Pensacola a lot. Their beach is absolutely gorgeous. And they have a lot of history over there, too. Like, I found out when I would go to Pensacola, Florida, it's been here, like, since 15-something. It's really? been inhabited. Yeah. And same thing with Jacksonville. Uh, it says that uh, it's been around, or at least people living there, since 1564. And it's not the most populated city in Florida, but it's the largest city by area. So there's a lot of landmass as far as its city limits. I didn't realize it had been around that long. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of great things to do, a lot of uh, good neighborhoods and downtown. Um, wow. It actually, uh, one source, I had forgotten about this, said that inhabitants have been there since 2500 B.C. Really? Yeah. Doesn't it? Isn't it like a fishbowl? Of all sorts of people, mm-hmm. all sorts of um, religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like very diverse. Yes. And uh, so this is where Bonnie Haim and her husband Michael lived in 1993. So I got this picture up here um, with their little boy. And, and all the pictures are on her website. Yes, yes. I put all those on there. And um, they look young. They were very young. They got married young. And she was a tiny little thing. She only um, weighed 110 pounds. She was 5'3". She was 24 at the time of her disappearance. And both her and her husband, Michael, worked uh, for a family member. And so here's some pictures of her with her son. That's She looks like she's probably about 19 there she or does. so. You said she's 24 when she disappeared? Yeah. Yeah, there's her graduation, her senior picture. Very, very pretty. Um, How long had they been married at that point? Um, or were they still, were they dating? No, they were married. They were married. And uh, let's see, she was 24. Um, they both worked at a family construction supply business. She was the accountant. I'm not sure what he did uh, there, but they did marry young. And at this point in the story, they had been married for about five years before she disappeared. And so they had their three-year-old son named Aaron. So he's obviously little in this picture, but there he is when he's older. So cute. Yeah. And they said that, I mean, she loved her son. I mean, that he was her whole world. And uh, she seemed like a like a neat lady, like she was real, um, capable, you know, she, um, had a good job. She did a good job at her employment. I mean, she just seemed like a very capable woman, a very strong woman. She probably grew into that and, and had it, the traits also. Yeah. Well, and things looked really good on the outside. Don't they always though? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and a lot of times they do. However, the inside story with family were, it was basically that the marriage was falling apart. And we'll get into a lot of those details uh, as we go. But Bonnie's friends and some of her family, including his family on his side, and one of those family members were, were, uh, was her boss, and her name's Evan. Evan is Michael's aunt. And so later she testified actually against her nephew. 
Really? Mm-hmm. And she knew that things weren't good because... Did um, they confide in each other, her and Bonnie? Well, they witnessed oh. as well because they worked. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if this is always the case, but when you have situations like this, it seems sometimes the, the I'll just say the predator will feel more comfortable around family to act out a little bit. You Especially know? his, I think. Mm-hmm. Because you want to make a good impression for the spouse's family, right, right? Right, Well, and there's a weird twist to this concerning her parents. It really makes me irritated, which we'll get to. But they they knew things weren't good, but no one expected what happened. They no probably one. thought, oh, marriage every day, going through the yep. troubles. They probably couldn't imagine what was to come. Yeah, they had no idea. So it was January 6, 1993. Bonnie got home from work around 7.30, and she was going to go over to Evan's house at 8 because they were planning a, a baby shower um, for a coworker. But she never arrived. Uh, finally, uh, she called Evan at 8.30, telling her that she wasn't going to be able to make it because her and Michael had gotten into a fight. And Evan said that she was crying. She was upset. She said, I asked uh, why, and she said that her and Michael had gotten into a discussion. I asked her if she wanted me to call her back later, and she said no, that she would just talk to me in the morning, and that was the last anybody heard from her. Oh, no. But you know, when someone calls you and tells you, I'm I'm not coming, I'll talk to you in the morning, you don't even assume you don't think they're going to get murdered. going to be the last time. Right. And that they're going to be murdered. Yeah, or disappear. Right. So the next morning, Michael called a coworker, and he said that neither one of them would be coming into work today. He claimed that Bonnie had left him the previous night, and that might have been the end of the story. You know, they might have thought that she just abandoned her son and her husband. Um, but even and here's what's crazy: when he called in to say that she left him and left her son, which she would never do. Her dad believed Michael. Why? I don't know. And I've never been able to figure it out. The whole time I was researching this case, her own father and mother believed Michael that she would leave her son. And it didn't make any sense because everybody else knew how much her son meant to her. Well, one of two things. Either the father thought Bonnie or Bonnie had a past where she was irresponsible, which it doesn't sound like, mm-hmm. or her husband and her father were close. I think they were definitely close, but like, you know how I am when it comes to loyalty? Yes. There is no to way, no way I would ever think that someone that seemed to love her son as much as she did would abandon them no. if, if, if she was my daughter. No. So it, it was just a weird situation. So he must think she would. Yeah. Yeah. He thought she would. Um, and then it sounds like her mother thought so too. And I couldn't find any information. Like had they had a bad relationship in the had past? Been was there something going on? I couldn't find anything like that. So either he's a really good con man, her ex or her husband, or there's something like you said going on in the past that would make them think that. In fact, her dad said, quote, there are thousands of other women that leave their husbands and families every year. And it's always a complete surprise to their families. But Evan, so she's not even a blood relative of Bonnie's. She's the aunt of Michael, the husband, said 
Bonnie, I'm sorry to say, is gone. She's not alive. If really? she was alive and had one ounce of life in her, she would have contacted someone. She wouldn't have left her son. No. I wonder if the dad, this just say throwing it out there, but it, to defend him so much, the dad might have had an inkling to maybe what happened, helped him cover it up. I mean, well, because why would you think your daughter there would up and leave your son? There is some suspicion that he had help. And we'll get into it in a little bit. Okay. But it does make you wonder what the motive was. Because I'm sorry. I just, as a parent, there is no way I would turn against my child no. if they no. went missing and think no. that. To me, it was like a betrayal. You'd be out there, posters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. TV, news, yep. everything. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then that same morning, Bonnie's purse, along with her money, credit cards, ID, checkbook, and other belongings were discovered in a trash bin behind the Red Roof Inn about five miles from her home. She won't get that too far. Nope. Without all of that. Right. Red flag there. Right. Police Mm. were contacted. They could quickly see that robbery obviously was not a motive. Authorities started searching for a car, and they found it at the Jacksonville airport, which is so weird. It's like everybody that wants to get rid of a car, they take it to an airport. It's kind of a strange deal. With no purse. Yeah, no purse. No belongings, Mm -hmm. but yet the car is Mm -hmm. at the airport. Yes. That's not a red flag. Well, and some criminals are just dumb. Yes, most of them. They get away with it because people are nice. It's not necessarily that they're smart. You know? Or incompetency- with, we've had some cases the police aren't yeah. doing their... Now, there are some scary, like Israel Keys. Yeah. That last episode we did last season, he was scary. He was very intelligent. The police noticed that the driver's seat was pushed back too far for Bonnie to even drive the car. Remember, she's little. It was obvious that someone much taller had last driven the car, and they also found a very clear, pristine footprint on the driver's side floor mat, a size 10 Nike shoe, the same type of shoe that Michael owned. Her dad's response was, well, beyond that, if it's his footprint, I'm not sure it means anything. My footprint is in my wife's car. That doesn't mean I've ever done her harm. Oh, my God. What is his problem? Anyway, so let me show you the, you know, the, the sad crime part scene. Is, the number one thing you see on a lot of these shows and podcasts, mm-hmm. when they get rid of a car, the seat's always back. I know. So you would think... They'd move it back up. Move it back up. Right. I mean, it's on TV all the time. Right. So... And, you know, killers, especially serial killers, they actually study serial killers. Wait till we get to BTK at the end of the season. It's amazing. That's an interesting case. So here's a picture of the footprint. See how perfect that is. And then uh, here's a, a picture farther away. But, I mean, look how far back the seat is. I mean, it's obvious that it was a tall person. Yeah, it's past... Or equal to the end of the mat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was probably pushed probably back all, the, all way. the way. Yeah, probably all the way. And then, um, let me see if I have any. Oh, that was another oh. one of her with her baby. Yeah, She's she was beautiful. so pretty. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, from looking at the uh, picture, it's someone that's very, very tall. So it's either an extremely tall woman with a you know superhuman sized foot, right. or it's a man. Do you know how tall he was? I do not. 
Mm-mm. Size 10, I'm thinking he's maybe six foot, maybe a little bit under, maybe a little bit over. Because mm-hmm. Mike's six one and he wears a size 11. Okay. Okay. Police, of course, they're looking at Michael right off the bat. And I see why. Most people, like most wives, when they disappear, it usually is the husband. It is. Not always, but usually. A big percentage it is. It is. I think sometimes they can get tunnel vision and not think of like stranger on stranger abduction. Yeah, because I've listened to podcasts where there's not even an investigation. The first 12 hours on some of them. Right. They've closed it because they have tunnel vision. You know, one to watch right now that's developing is the Murdoch case in South Carolina, the lawyer, because his wife and son were both killed. And then just last week, I think last Saturday, he was supposedly shot at and had a bullet graze his head. The trajectory, everything's wrong. I'm like, you're so stupid. You list should have on, just left uh, yeah. it alone. We need to now. put that on our list. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's developing. So if our true crime people want to watch something <laughs> developing, it's right there. And he he's probably the one that did it. I wouldn't want to be on it's that be jury because I'd be like, no, he's guilty. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so they did suspect foul play. They suspect Michael, but Michael insisted, of course, that he's innocent. So he said that Bonnie drove off around 11 p.m. January 6th. He called her mother, Carol, over to watch Aaron while he went to find her. Okay. Carol late, later said that he was gone for about 45 minutes. And when he returned, he didn't call the police. He went to bed. So she's missing, and he waits a while, and mm-hmm. then calls and said he's going to look for her. No, he calls the mother, the mother. to watch the son. Remember, so he little Aaron was three, her. and then he goes to look for her. He went to bed. Uh, he called into work the next morning, and it wasn't until the purse was found that he finally called the police and reported her you missing. Know, if he was worried about her, I'd be up all night waiting. So but if, I wouldn't be sleeping with my baby. If you hear the annoying noise in the background, it's my mother's dogs. Right. They want to come in and join. What the police decided to do was to interview the only possible witness to the crime, and that was little Aaron. And he was three? Three. Now, this is interesting. Okay, so a child psychologist interviewed little Aaron... And he said, Daddy shot Mommy. Oh, no. And my daddy could not wake her up. (gasps) He drew a picture of his mom being shot in the stomach. But that didn't help investigators, you know, much because they need evidence. They can't just go on the word of a three-year-old to arrest Michael. Uh, You can't convict him on that testimony. Surely they got a search warrant for the house. Well, what's frustrating to me is why didn't they search the property for a grave? Well, yeah, because a fresh grave, you'd be able to tell definitely. Right. And then Bonnie's good old father uh, said, well, you can't trust the credibility of a child. I, well, it, I don't think at that age they learned to lie. He, the dad's a poop bird. Yeah. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Yes. Because it's his daughter. It's like he is insisting that nothing has happened to his own daughter. And he keeps dismissing clear signs that something's wrong. And man, it really makes me wonder about his involvement. Now, I don't think there's any proof they ever came up with that he was involved, but it's just really, really weird. Now, Aaron later. Described, quote, a very uneasy encounter that he had with his dad's parents 
So this is now Michael's parents when they told him that they loved him, but he had been brainwashed. I know. I saw that in one of the articles, and I didn't understand that part. So you mean brainwashed? With that's what he would say? Yeah. The the um the like when he told the child psychologist, "Daddy shot mommy." It appears that Michael's parents and Bonnie's parents dismissed it as the musings of a three-year-old, and his parents even went so far to say that he was brainwashed and told him that later. But brainwashed by who? Because both sets of parents believed maybe Michael. Aunts, so who would brainwash maybe him? Maybe aunts, police, the psychologist. I don't know. I find that ridiculous myself. Okay, so I want to play this video uh, real quick. Um, and I think this is where it's the footage surrounding her murder, and it may have some of it that has to do with little Erin. This exclusive video shows Bonnie's son, Aaron, when he was just six years old. His social worker and foster mother here questioning him about drawings that he's made and things that he said about his father hurting his mother. This is a clip of the social worker back then reading what he wrote. My dad killed my mom. Then he threw the pocketbook away in a different place somewhere near our house in a dumpster. He buried my mom. We digged it, the hole. Now flash forward to 2019, and Aaron says he has no memory of those conversations. This is the only tenth recall of what he said when he was young. Now, Bob- Isn't well, I don't that think interesting? he was brainwashed, number no. one. But again... I don't understand because he said we dug the grave. So that means that he was there. Why did they not check in the backyard? What I find worse is we dug the grave. Yeah. So he was there watching three year old or be helping. Yeah. Because he said we dug the grave. Yeah. Yeah. Poop bird. Now, a judge did not agree that Aaron was brainwashed. In fact, he thought Aaron might probably be in danger. Aaron was removed from his dad's custody, and he went to live with his aunt, Liz Peak, and was later adopted by the Fraser family after Michael's parental rights were terminated oh. and changed his last name to Fraser. Was when, it terminated before? By the judge. Before there was even the investigation? Yes. And, yes. Well, good. Yeah. Good for that judge. And then when he was six, he asked his adoptive parents if he could go searching for his mom, and they said yes. And he walked into the garage and grabbed a shovel. You're going to have to let him in. You know, we're just going to have to he let the dogs in. Yep. So How he, old was he? Six? Six. So he was three when she disappeared, and when he told the psychologist that he helped dig, and then... Uh, when he was six, he asked his foster parents if they could go searching for his mom. They said yes. He walked into the garage. He grabbed a shovel, and he later said, I have always known that my mom was buried. I just didn't know where. I tried to remember, but I couldn't. On top of that, he spent years sleeping with a brick under his pillow just in case his father came after him in the middle of the night. I'd be curious to know how the parents thought then. Yeah. Well, they probably dismissed it like they have the whole time. Probably thought that he was, you know, well, and at this point, he's adopted. 
Something's up then. I find it interesting. He's adopted, taken away before a trial, before evidence. Yep. So Judge clearly had insight. Concerns. And concerns. Yeah. And, and obviously him. he couldn't go to either grandparents because they both thought Bonnie just abandoned her child. Thank the Lord. Yeah. And he also, when he was in the eighth grade, uh, he wrote an essay describing his mother's murder and how his grandparents helped get rid of the body. Oh, I knew something. Someone had to help him. But the thing is, is I I don't know which grandparents. Was it her parents? Was it Michael's parents? Um, the way her dad acts makes me wonder if it was him. Uh, but he did. He wrote in the essay that they helped, but they were never able. They were never convicted. They were never brought up on any charges. There was never any evidence. That's just what he remembers, and it makes me wonder. No way to prove that. Right. The only statement is we yes, buried her. Yes, we buried her. It could be him, the child, mm-hmm. grandparents. Right, right. Okay, so from that point on, he struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts um, from about the age of 16. And he said that when his life got rough, he would always have this burning desire to find his mom. Did he blame himself that he couldn't protect her? I don't know. I just think probably the whole thing is traumatic. And even though he didn't remember it, if he saw his dad shoot his mom. And bury her. And bury her. And help bury her. Yeah. So I'm sure post-traumatic stress disorder was there. And he said, uh, it's almost like when I was in uh, like my, you know, 20s, if I ever got like really, really sick or something, I'd always want, you know, dad, because me and him are very close. And so even as an adult, I would want my dad. You do. My mother's been gone 18 years, I believe. And uh, when I get sick, that's the first person. You think Because they always make it better for you. Yes, just their presence even, you know, because they take care of you. They do. And uh, he's been in therapy his entire life, and he was diagnosed with PTSD. Now, she disappeared in 1993. Uh, She was officially declared dead in 1999, okay? Now, I do know some states... They, because of financial reasons and will, I just found this out on a podcast I was listening to. After five years, they, some states automatically can declare them as dead. Yeah. For wills. Yeah. And other states, it's seven years. And I don't know if this was like an automatic thing or if this was, you know, they finally got her declared dead. You know, I don't know what, what that meant. Now, this is what's crazy. In 2005, so fast forward, Aaron sued his father, Michael, for $26.3 million in damages for leaving him as the, quote, only witness to Bonnie's murder and opening him up to danger of harm, which is interesting because the only harm would be from his dad. As part of the judgment, Aaron was awarded his childhood home, the same home his mother disappeared from. Now, had Michael been convicted no. yet? or No. Nope. So all those years passed and, and nothing. And so he was able to bring evidence to this trial that his dad was the one that did it. So even though it wasn't a criminal, it was a civil trial, he was able to prove it, and he was awarded the house. Well, good for him. Too bad he couldn't get more. What's interesting, though, about this house is that after Bonnie, you know, quote unquote, disappeared, Michael eventually moved out. He rented it and he would put in the rental agreement 
that he prohibited any landscaping or digging in the backyard. And if you had dogs and you rented his house, they couldn't be in the backyard. Well, then he had to remember something then. No, this is his dad. Michael. Oh, the dad. Yeah. So before Aaron got I the see. house, he would rent it out and you couldn't put the dogs in the backyard and you couldn't do any digging in the backyard. There's quite a few red flags so far. Mm-hmm. If backyard. you can't dig, no dogs. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't take a genius. Mm-hmm. So he gets the house in 2005. Fast forward 2014. Aaron, he wants to do some renovations. And he had some helpers, and they started removing some bricks that were basically on top of a concrete slab in the backyard. <laughs> I mean, again, it's like, why didn't they look in the backyard when she first went missing? Did they even check the house? I don't know. I don't know. I, I couldn't mean, find any record of them checking the backyard. So they just got the car, towed it back to Michael. Uh I don't know. But yet took the child away. Yeah, it's a weird deal unless he immediately did this because you have the bricks and then underneath the bricks was a concrete slab that was an outdoor shower in the past because there was a pool. Right. So you could shower. Two weeks later, they're demoing the pool and he decided to run an excavator over the slab to remove it and then break the water pipe because he didn't want any other... Um, you know, pool and water leaks and things like that. Well, he discovered a plastic bag. And at first, like, he didn't enter his head, you know, what he would find. Really? Now we're going to have the, oh my. the clock. So Michael <laughs> and, his, and his son at this point weren't speaking. Obviously, right, there was right. a lawsuit. Right. Because I imagine... If Michael knew that his son was digging up the backyard... He'd probably be pretty nervous. Very nervous. It doesn't sound like they had any relationship past him being removed from his dad's custody. Well, yeah. good. So I mean, I'm curious, are you going to have anything else start chirping around here, no. Mom? Or are we... Is I mean, sit? no, I don't. Okay, very good. All right, so he discovers this plastic bag... He opened it, and at first, when he looked in there and he pulled it out, he thought it was a coconut shell until he saw teeth and an eye socket, and he knew immediately that he was holding his mom's head in his hand. Oh, no. So this is how he describes what what happened. He's been through all of that and then finds his own mother's. All the years of, oh, my gosh. And and I know it sounds awful because it is, but I also think if there's anyone that... I would want to find her, it'd be him. Right. Because he was always looking for her. Well, that's true. Minus a tragedy, though, because he said it was very difficult to find his mom. I, I don't think it would give him any peace, though. No. It'd be like, to me, I would think it'd be like, you deal with the murder, you help bury it, supposedly, by his words. One, one, one reminder, one bringing everything up right after another. Mm-hmm. And then finding the body. You know, he went through everything again, probably a million times, over yeah. and over. Sad. Yeah. And so this is where um, Michael Haim leaves court, but they go into some of the testimony of Aaron. For our newsroom showing Michael Haim leaving court just moments ago. The first day of his murder trial wrapped up following dramatic testimony, including chilling statements from the biological son of Michael and Bonnie Haim. His name is now Aaron Fraser. 
He was adopted when he was a small child just months after his mother's disappearance in 1993. This is video of the little boy when Mary interviewed his father at the family's storeside home just days after Bonnie Hayne was reported missing. Years later, Aaron Fraser took possession of that house and was tearing out the swimming pool in 2014. While digging in the yard, he discovered his mother's buried remains. News for Justice Scott Johnson is joining us live from the courthouse. Scott, it's hard to think what it must be like to testify against your father about the murder of your mother. It was, Tom, and I just attempted to speak to Michael Haim again. As he left the courthouse steps, he had essentially nothing to say to me. A second day in a row, I tried to question him here as he left court, and as you saw there, just not saying anything as he left the courthouse today. The interesting thing, though, was what happened inside the courtroom with his biological son taking the stand, essentially to help prosecution make a case against his biological father, who he had been estranged from for decades. This is not the small child Mary Bear originally introduced us to in the weeks after Bonnie Hames' murder. He was adopted, and today a grown Aaron Frazier testified about discovering his own mother's remains. He took possession of the home around 2003 and leased it to renters. Then he was planning to sell the home in 2014 and was removing the pool and an external shower. Here in the dirt, underneath the shower, he finds a bag. I accidentally um, busted up the bag, and I saw what I describe as a, something that looked like coconut. Um, it was a fibrous material, just like a, like a brown coconut. The coconut was, in fact, the skull of his biological mother. I picked up the coconut object and it ended up being the, the top portion of her skull. Um, I looked at we I hand I had it in my hand. Um, I didn't really see anything. I handed it to Thad, and he looked back in the hall and we could see teeth. And that, at that point in time, you could you could see the top portion of her eye sockets. Here you can see some of her teeth that were found. In this section, it's hard to clarify, but these were described as some of her remains. Frazier fought back tears as he described this most difficult part of the search for justice in his mother's death. And after all of this, this case turned to somewhat of a supernatural bent when defense lawyers were in questioning the woman who rented the house and signed an agreement to not allow the dog to tear up the backyard or to ever dig up the backyard. They were asking her about claims that there were ghosts in the house Things like candles that would light themselves, mattresses that would all of a sudden turn bloody, then all of a sudden not be bloody. They even brought up the fact that investigators with police at the time brought in psychics to try and help crack this case. We are live downtown at the courthouse. Scott Johnson, Channel 4, The Local Station. He's got away with it all these years. I have a question, though. If I was in a house and renting a house, and the renter... Or the uh, owner said, don't dig up the backyard, don't let your dog go in the backyard, don't renovate. Wouldn't you call the police? Well, I it's, think... I mean, because well, you would he, know who the man is. His name well, hasn't not changed. not necessarily. I mean, this was many years later. Uh, I could see how, you know, because we had a rental, I wouldn't want dogs digging up our backyard either. What I do find weird 
is that he didn't want dogs back there at all. The only thing I can think of is maybe he said because of the landscaping or whatever, but it didn't look like there was much landscaping. But, you know, sometimes landlords can be weird and they have weird requests. My mind probably would not go to murder if I was normal. <laughs> but well, because I watch so much true crime, yes. Mine wouldn't either, but if his name is Michael... How do you pronounce it? Michael Hame, but they might might not have even heard of the crime or heard of anything because that was 1993. I don't know how long he he lived before he moved. So at that point, it would have been a cold case. Did they even know about it? Well, that's true. DNA confirmed, too, that that was his mom. They also found, uh, of course, more of her remains, but a 22 caliber shell was with her remains. Michael owned a 22 rifle. Her death was ruled a homicide, even though it was hard to tell what killed her, because it sounds like her remains began to disintegrate, you know, from what I could see. Well, don't tell me that he, again, the police let that one go. No. They seemed to let quite a bit go. No, they didn't. Uh, the examiner found an indention in her pelvic pelvic bone in the, Indicative of a bullet hitting it, Michael Haim was arrested for murder in August of 2015. Well, the son did say she was shot in the stomach. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she obviously was with that indention in the pelvic bone. Aaron later said that the fear intensified when he found his mother's skeletal remains buried in his backyard, and he was relieved when Haim was arrested, but he got bonded out four months later, and Aaron's fear returned. Later, during the sentencing phase of the trial, Aaron told the judge how he had ran into Haim in a restaurant in 2016. So this is after he's been arrested. So he gets arrested. He's why, bonded out. Why would he get bonded out? It's, it's a cold murder. case. There's a son alive. There's well, family alive. Well, the way they could be looking at it is it's been however many years, so what, 20 years. Um, let's see. She disappeared in, what, 1995. Uh, we're now in 2015. So it's been 20 years. He's not had any criminal records since then. You know, but he's a potential murderer. Adult, so maybe they just felt like he wasn't that much of a danger. But I'm like you; I think he needed to stay in there and not be let out on bond at all. And he could he could flee, right? I, I don't he, understand that. I mean, you're, you're going to trial for murder and let you out, and then you see him at a restaurant. Oh, that poor kid! I saw in the trial, which this videos on outline of a murder podcast.com mm-hmm. and just looking at his face that that was hard it looked like every word out of his mouth he was just ready to burst in tears yes so sad he said it was very tough finding his mother and he uh, said quote i think everybody can imagine even if it's not a loved one finding a skull and picking it up and what that would do to someone not to mention that it was your mother michael testified during his trial that he loved bonnie Haim. he said she'd been unhappy for maybe a month Maybe two. I can't put my finger on how long, but it had been going on where she wasn't her bubbly self like she was. Loved her to death. Yeah. Yeah. And if you like, if we go back to the picture of him, here's what I'm seeing. 
and and from his demeanor in past interviews. And I tried to find the the interview of him and little Aaron right after Bonnie disappeared, and I could not find it. But I remember it because I was an adult at that time, and I remember watching the interview. And he seemed like a C personality, very reserved, um, analytical, very, you know, like he would think really carefully before he said anything, kind of like maybe a little antisocial, like he, you know, and then of course you're thinking, well, his wife's disappeared, you know, but he definitely seemed to be a person that was that tend more on the quiet side, but also those, especially if they're a C person, I can tend to have explosive anger if they feel overwhelmed or that and, they can't control the situation. And she the opposite. Yeah. Cheery, bubbly, happy. Well, and you can even look like at her clothes. She, like she has, you know, she wears bright colors. And so smiling. she definitely had probably more of an extroverted type personality or at least a sweetheart from what I could tell. But she also sounded like a very tough woman. Now, Evan told police when Bonnie first back, you know, disappeared, and then later she testified during Michael Hames' trial. And she said that Michael was often verbally abusive to Bonnie at the office. So remember how I said? At the office. Yep. People had noticed their marriage was suffering. and But again, they didn't think that he'd kill her. Well, surely at the office... People would step in. Well, I don't know, but she does remember one time the abuse turned physical. She said one day they got into an argument in a fight in the parking lot, and she came in crying because he had slammed her hand in the door. Her nails were broke, and she was very upset at that point. She called the police? It didn't seem like she did. I didn't see any record of that. Which, by the way, from someone that's abused, not myself, Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, that, that but I didn't mean that. But they don't call the police, right? You know, sometimes things like that are so outrageous in your mind, you just don't think anything will happen, right? You know what I mean? So bad that you're going to be murdered. That's what it seems like, and you know, that's what's interesting is you know, you fall in love, you marry this person, and you know, they may be a little fiery, but you expect that, or you know, maybe they have outbursts of anger, but. When you look at how many people are married where one of the spouse may have an anger problem, but they don't ever end up killing somebody. No, no. And it just doesn't enter your head. And you may think, well, I'm being overly, you know, paranoid. There's Listening no to way. your friends. Right. Yeah. And because you don't think it. that. No, people Not don't think all. that. Not at all. There's a show called The Killer Speaks. It's a very, very good show. I think it's on Amazon Prime. And we've been watching it. And it's they the killers don't think the same way because on this show the killers are actually talking about the the murder that they did or murders right, right. they don't think the same they say uh, a lot of psychologists say they're reliving it uh-huh. so that's why they can be like PTK they said his memory was you mean, unbelievable you mean. B, B-T-K. as in boy, right. that, that would be right. bind. Not the band. Not pined. Bind with a B. Right. Yes. Anyway. Thank you for pointing that out. Anytime. Anyway, uh, that his memory was so 
unbelievably accurate, but the psychologist said it was because they relive it mm-hmm. as they're telling it. Mm-hmm. So I could see where when they speak and they're they're talking that I think the most amazing one was this guy that was best friends with the lady that he killed for thirty years, and they had both moved up to I think Wyoming or Montana, and he was going to stay in California and he was a meth dealer at the time and he had served some time in prison. So his friend's like, why don't you move, get a fresh start, blah, blah. He moves. Well, she had owned a bar at the time and I think she was struggling financially and she begged him and begged him and begged him and begged him to teach her how to do the meth business. And he said, some friend, right. He said, personally, I don't want to be involved in it. He said, but I will show you how it's done, because he was very successful. I'll show you how it's done, but in exchange, I want a new riding lawnmower. And she's like, absolutely. I don't think she understood how different he thought, because she didn't get him the riding lawnmower. And I think it was like two to three years later, he was um, drinking with his girlfriend at his house, and he just all of a sudden was... I'm, I'm, you know, I've waited long enough. And so he got his weapon and he went over to her house. The girlfriend's in the car. He goes into the house and there's a guy that was a neighbor, a friend, um, upstanding citizen, uh, sitting on the couch. He shot him through the eye, killed him instantly, and then shot her while he's describing this event. He says, yeah, the, the uh, producer's like, well, do you feel bad about killing your best friend? He goes, she shouldn't have done that. She, if I just wish she wouldn't have done that. So always on the yes, other. he always never thinking mm-hmm. like we do. No, and that's what gets people in trouble. They don't think that it's the simplest lives mm-hmm. that you see, and all of a sudden one of the spouses is murdering another spouse. You know, so it's it. You just don't think that way, and I think that's what was happening here. However. Like I said, Bonnie seemed like a strong woman. She'd been preparing for several months to leave Michael. What's interesting, though, she didn't see it, couldn't believe it, but not even her aunt, his aunt, saw it. Well, and no, I'm sure she didn't see that he would murder, but she knew no, he had killed yeah. her. The abuse took yeah. the prosecution, so knew that that he had, Judges Michael had killed knew it. her. Yeah. But, and that's his aunt. Mm-hmm. And then her parents don't believe. And her parents don't believe her. Yeah. Well, no, the aunt knew that he killed her. Well, I know. But But not that he would do that. Bonnie didn't believe, or, yeah, Bonnie didn't think he would do it. Yeah. Is what I meant. Let me clarify. Yeah. You know, the aunt saw it, his aunt Mm -hmm. saw it a mile away, all the flags. But Bonnie herself. Well, I don't know because she had been preparing for several months to leave him. She'd opened up a secret bank account. She had stashed away enough money to put a deposit down on an apartment for her and Aaron. But Michael found out and demanded that she close it. She did, but she continued hiding money with a friend. So I think she knew she had to do it smartly. I and don't it was know. time to go. Yeah, I don't know if she thought he would kill her. Maybe she was scared and knew that eventually it'd end up that way. The money was with a friend, and at the time of her disappearance, and this is back, of course, in the 90s, she had saved uh, $1,250 to help her get away. And then she'd also enrolled Aaron in a new preschool, and her plan was to leave late January, and she disappeared January 5th. 
Oh, no. The jury deliberated for 90 minutes and found him guilty. Now, well, of course. I love the prosecutor. His name's Mac Heavener, I think. He, the way he phrases things, like this. He described Aaron finding his mother's skull this way. Quote, on that day, that mother and child reunion brought Aaron Frazier face to face with the product of this defendant's ill will, and it brought him face to face with the product of this defendant's hatred, spite, and evil intent. Now, the use of face to face, finding her skull, right. very interesting how he phrased that. And then listen how he, how he described the footprint. He said, quote, you'll see the truth scream from the floor mats. The shoe print speaks volumes in this case. He had just finished digging that grave. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when you look at this foot, I didn't footprint. I did think of that. Right. So that right there mm-hmm. is dirt from him just burying his dead wife. Well, I'm still puzzled why they didn't prosecute this earlier. I mean, the prosecutor said clear evidence, the footprint, the mm-hmm. seat's back, mm-hmm. the purse is gone. They didn't have a body. She's gone. They didn't have a body. And so, well, back if they would have checked the backyard, I know they might have had a I body. I don't get that part. That part right there, I still am baffled. The only thing I could think of is did he, before the police arrived at the house, get that concrete slab put in place? Oh, hang on. So how long after she didn't show up for work? That same day. They found her car and her purse. The same day. Like, to me, there's no way. And her aunt, his aunt talked to her the night before. Mm -hmm. And they'd had a fight because she's supposed to go over. The would still be wet. Yeah, I don't think he had time to do anything. I just... I don't know. It's very frustrating. Tunnel vision, like Maybe you said. Maybe he was that good at, you know, manipulation. Yeah, but... Because a lot of them are really good at that. Wouldn't you think, you have police, well, let's search the house. And they they suspected him from the start. So they clearly don't search the house well enough. Right. And they don't go to the backyard, which is part of a house. Yes, I, it, I don't know. The, and, and this is really cool what the judge did. Aaron told the judge that he wanted his father sentenced for every year he lived free. And Aaron lived, quote, in fear that he might come for me like he said he would. I was the only person on the planet that had knowledge of what he had done and could stand the way of his liberty. Liz Peak, now she's Bonnie Hames' sister. She's the one that got temporary custody of him before he was adopted. She said, quote, Michael Haim somehow convinced my parents that I was an evil person for taking his son away from him. They, this turned my parents against me and my children and broke my heart. I lost my best friend, my sisters, and my parents in the same week. I had to build brick walls around my heart, and I couldn't mourn them. I had to stay strong for Aaron and my children. I couldn't say or do anything that would have the appearance of leading leading Aaron's testimony. I was only 26 years old, alone and terrified that Michael would fatally hurt someone else in my family. So he not only killed her sister, involved his three-year-old, but he also turned her own parents against her and Bonnie and then her own children. That's terrible. Poop bird. I wonder what, I still like to know the family dynamic with her and even his i I think he he had to have help there's no way he he had to be a master manipulator 
He didn't come off that way, though. No, I, I he don't comes get off it. sort of dumb. Then his mother, which, you know, the the family of the criminal used to, I'm like, man, there must be something jacked with these people. But when I read BTK's daughter's book, it gave me a, a whole new insight to, I call them the hidden victims. Because sometimes you do have cases where the parents abused the future predator Right. And that led to some things. Um, but there are other times where they were raised in the best of homes. And they're just as, like, they lost a family member. And it won't ever be like literally losing one that you'll never be able to see again, obviously. But they go through a process of grieving, too. So his mother, I'm trying not to roll my eyes, um, when she said, quote, that her son was raised in a loving and Christ-centered home. I don't believe it. At this point, he had a new wife. Her name was Anne Wright. And how long after the disappearance? I have no idea. I tried to find, but she asked the judge to, quote, pray before making his decision. Michael is a Christian. He loves Jesus very much. Really? Okay, so if he's such a Christian, then why didn't he go to the police and say, I killed my ex or my past wife. If you're supposedly a Christian, which I am, right? right? Like if anybody heard that Jesus is waiting for you from my phone, that's like my reminder to stop what I'm doing and spend time with Jesus. And so to me, like, this is funny. When I was in my teens, I was a stinker. And I lived in Childress, Texas, and I used to, back in the day, I'm going to age myself, cassette tapes. Right. I'd go to a store. I'd grab the cassette tapes I wanted. I would go into the area where you change clothes, and I would steal the cassette tapes. I had like 130 cassette tapes that were all stolen from Walmart. Oh, my gosh. So when I'm like in my 20s, at this point, I think Kent was maybe four, I'm like, I've got to, I've got to contact Walmart and let, you know, I'm a Christian and I need to tell them what I did. And so I wrote a letter. I explained where I lived, what I did. And I was so scared. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you I was afraid. You thought the police would come to your door and at any time. they're going to arrest me. Kent's not going to have a mom. I'm going to go to jail. I mean, it was like terrible. Anyway, that did not happen. I did get a letter from them and they said, we've never, ever in the history of having Walmart, had anybody write us and confess to stealing from us when they were teenagers. But the point of it was, I felt bad for something that small compared to murder. So don't give me this Christian BS. Oh, I I don't. If he truly was, he would have confessed. But don't they all, well, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of them all of a sudden, they find Christ. It's sort of a, a manipulative move. Yeah. In my opinion, on her part. Oh, and then to top it off, he not only didn't confess, he lived off of her life insurance policy all those years after she disappeared or was declared dead. He's a good Christian. Yeah, that's a real good one. Now, here's the problem. The judge was going to have to sentence him according to the 1993 sentence guidelines for second degree murder. Makes sense. However, he could explain in writing his departure from those guidelines. So in an 11-page sentencing order, he sentenced him to life in prison. 
He said the severe emotional trauma Mr. Frazier, which is Aaron, his son, suffered with the corresponding need to continue therapy, the ongoing depression, the suicidal ideations, and the feeling of fear that he's had to endure is the exact type of emotional trauma that justifies an upward departure from 1993 sentencing guidelines. One final line from the prosecution was in describing Michael as, quote, a man going through marital, marital problems and a guy who's really good, really accomplished at burying the truth. Now, how old was he when he was convicted? That was 2000 and... I'm not sure. I'm so... sure at this point he's probably in his 50s. And remember how police always thought he had an accomplice? Right. They I wondered if it was his parents. And, and we're not ever going to know. Or even her parent, her dad. He was right, right. Now, um, I want to finish off with some of Aaron's interview after the trial with a reporter named Mary Bear. So she's uh, Mary Bear is the one that originally interviewed Michael Haim and Aaron after Bonnie went missing, and um, he talks about you know in this video of how he would sleep with a pillow under his uh, head. Because he was afraid his dad would come for him. Now, when he was adopted out, did it say, or did you say, did he go within the family, or was it no. a private adoption? Yeah, he was adopted outside the family. Bless his Aaron heart. Right. Michael Haynes' sentence does bring a bit of relief, knowing the long fight is over, but his mom is still gone. I was able to sit down with him 26 years after meeting him as a toddler when his mother was first reported missing. So... The last time I sat down with you, you were three and a half. That's true. And we thought your mom was missing. And it turned out she really wasn't missing. Um, <clears throat> I know you've forgotten a lot about that time of your life, but are there any recollections that stand out to you from then? No, I have no memory of her, no memory of him prior to coming to court. Probably my earliest memory that I can think of as being at Liz's house, but I'm not sure if that was when I was in her custody or whether that was when I was visiting after I was already with the Frasers. So like, I have a hard time pinpointing my earliest memory. But. You mentioned in court, you carried a shovel and you went and looked for a shovel when you said you wanted to go find your mommy. Fast forward, when you grew up and you went to the backyard of the home where it happened and you wanted to do some excavating and, and, and remove the pool. Do you think you were subconsciously looking for your mom then? Um, I mean, maybe partly. Two weeks prior, we removed some bricks that were on top of the concrete slab that she was under. And I told Jean Frazier, my adopted parents then, that I thought if she was anywhere in the yard, it would be there. Um, and then two weeks later when we were demoing the pool and we run the excavator over to concrete and I began to remove it and break the water pipe, uh, there's no thought in my head that she's here. Like, I'm not digging to look for her when I found the plastic bag and her skeleton. Like, it wasn't, this is her. It, it, so it was all, it was, I wasn't actively doing it. May, maybe, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe subconsciously. Maybe subconsciously there was, you know, something there, but... Yeah. I mean, even even when I picked her skull up, it wasn't... Oh, this could be her. I thought it was a coconut. Like, it looked like a coconut. It did not look like bone. It wasn't, it wasn't until I saw the teeth that I, I knew that it was her. Do you think maybe 
divine intervention? Um, was it just a coincidence that you happened to be the one that picked up the skull? No, I like to think that it is. There's, you know, even through this whole process, there was, you know, part of me that says, why are we going through this if he's not going to be found guilty? Why would the whole family be just tormented again? So I felt like God had, God had his hand on, on this the whole time. And your mom maybe guiding you? Yes. Michael Haim, can you call him or refer to him as your father at all, or is it just Michael Haim? I refer to him as my biological father. But your mother, Bonnie, she loved you very much, and I know that from um, just seeing the pictures. And um, the first time I walked into the home, Erin, I knew that she didn't leave you. I remember coming back to the newsroom and telling Tom Wells that she, she didn't leave him. There's no way she left that little boy. I just want you to know that. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I told him she's crying he now him very much I did I mean I'm sure his his aunts all tell him that but I don't know I just felt compelled that I had to tell him that to reassure him because I was there that night in our newsroom when Mary came back from that interview she told me that she was sure she just interviewed a killer I almost fell over do you remember what gave you that feeling? Oh, clearly. I mean, it was partly, it was Michael Haynes' demeanor at the time. He just didn't seem that concerned about where Bonnie could be, you know, that she was missing. I just kept thinking, this just doesn't add up. And then, and then like I told Aaron, the pictures revealed such love that she had for him. And then it was also, it seemed like he was coaching Aaron, his little boy. He kept asking him, Aaron, where's mommy? Where's mommy? Where's mommy? I was a young mother then myself, and I kept thinking, I, I mean, I was just kind of recoiled and thinking, why on earth would anybody say that to their child when their mommy is clearly missing? It just, all of it kind of just, it, it, it just didn't add up. It, it really didn't. Mary's never revealed that hunch publicly until now because it never influenced our coverage of this investigation, never once we don't report hunches here, only facts as we know them, information that we can independently verify. I have to point out, too, that the young woman who is sitting with Aaron in the interview is Alyssa, and that is his wife of 10 years, um, and she chose not to speak, but she was there for, for support for him. Now, that that's interesting to me because you can tell how emotionally you know, they were impacted by that. There 26 were, years later. Yeah, and the fact that she knew she interviewed a killer. And here's Just what bothered like me. the son knew his dad did it. killed the mother. I yeah. was watching him, the son. He just looked sad, his eyes. So all his whole life, this has followed him, and it's going to probably follow him to his death. And there were, there's more of the interview, and I'll probably start adding these things to the show notes in the podcast mm -hmm. so people can look this stuff up themselves. And it'll be on outlineofamurderpodcast.com. Yeah. yeah, and he's got issues with anger, and he talked about it. And it bothers me because I don't want him to have issues of anger. You know, it's, it's not good for him. It's not good probably for his marriage or anything like that. 
Um, but he said that he, uh, and he described the relationship with his wife and how he's not sure he wants kids because he still deals with anger. And not to mention, again, back to a podcast I was listening to, uh, the man did not want to have children with anybody mm-hmm. because of what his father had done mm-hmm. as a serial killer. Yeah. So he was afraid that Gene, he wanted to wait on him. Yeah. And then if it wasn't in him, it passed to the children. Right. I could see that. Yeah. And I don't even know if there's any like scientific background that there is a gene. But um, he said about his wife that she's always been by my side. She's always been supportive, even when it's hard to be supportive. She's a wonderful woman. We've had our issues, but we came out through the other side of it. I have a huge support system, like I was saying before. I don't know that I would want to be a negative influence on a child. To me, that's like, wow, your dad, again, poop bird, where you're scared, like you've got anger and you don't want a child because you don't want that negative influence. That's like taking another part of his life away. Yeah, his dad, if you want to call him that, has ruined his life. Yeah. And then he described those that helped him, including the original detective. He said there's hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people that were behind the scenes, even back in 93 when Mike was trying to get custody of me again. Many people, I don't even know their names or what they look like, but they were fighting for me knowing that he did something wrong and that me being in his custody would be the worst thing for me. They helped protect me. There's been an incredible number of people that I've maintained relationships with, like Robbie Henson. So he was a lead homicide detective in the case. He's always been a guidance for me. Anytime I have a question about anything in life, I call him. If I'm having issues with being spiteful over somebody in the family doing something that I disagree with, he always talks me down from the ledge and says, just kill him with kindness. Don't do things out of spite. And he had recently got a VHS tape of Christmas 92. So that was the year before, uh, or actually probably just even a month before that they burned onto a a DVD and he gets to watch and see his mom of whom he has no memory whatsoever. Now, I wonder what the, besides ruining his life and he has anger issues, I wonder if he works and has a, you know, no drugs mm-hmm. or alcohol. Mm-hmm. That's you a heavy burden. You could probably do more research, but yeah, it makes you wonder. And you can see some of the anger and the tightness around his mouth. You know, there's definitely sadness, you know, because the eyes will droop down it's very a little sad. bit. But you can also see there's some tightness there. Uh, now, we used to do our after show combo, and I wanted to hold off on doing that for a while. I want to finish this with eight stages of progression to intimate partner homicide real quick. So we're going to end this episode to give something beneficial to people, especially if they might find themselves in a similar situation and they're not sure. And this was developed by Dr. Jane Monken Smith, eight uh, stages of progression to intimate partner homicide. So number one is the pre-relationship. This is any prior history of stalking and abuse by the offender. Usually there's going to be police reports, arrests of domestic violence, and offenses against the same or multiple, multiple partners, including some restraining orders. However, in Michael's case, there's no information that revealed past abuse. But it's a good idea to look, you know, because like when people like, quote, fall in love, they get like 1,400 chemicals in their brain that makes them love sick. 
And so they literally are just oblivious to normal thinking like, hey, maybe you should check this guy out and make sure he's not a killer, right? Because <laughs> right. we don't think about that. We meet someone, we fall in love. But if you see any red flags at all, I would highly recommend seeing if there's any past arrest records, domestic violence, or restraining orders. And even though there's eight, it doesn't necessarily mean a person could have all eight. Yeah. They, they might even, have just been really good even at a hiding couple, things. Three, I mean, yeah, and you don't have to have all eight to no, have concerns. No. The next is early relationship. This is marked by a quickly developing, quickly developing romantic relationship. That's one thing I've seen where it goes really, really fast. Bonnie was eighteen when they married, and that's not an indicator of abuse. I mean, I was married at nineteen. I'm still happily married to the same man. But she said that the desire to move quickly through a relationship on the part of the abuser can be an indication of what's called love bombing, which is an extremely effective technique used by abusers to encourage the relationship to move faster, which we saw with Dirty John in season one we referred to at the beginning. She described love bombing as, quote, pattern of behavior wherein the batterer overwhelms her potential victim with grand romantic gestures, proclamations, and promises. The most common of these is professing their love very early in the relationship. The goal of love bombing is to overwhelm a potential victim moving so quickly that the victim doesn't have time to think about or process what's going on. So basically, it's a sweeping a person off their feet uh, type of situation. They're in the giddy. Yeah, and, and they're they, just... Yes, they're not paying attention. Did it? Do you remember, did it say how long they dated before they got married? If they were 18, I mean, I'm thinking the most could be if they were high school sweethearts or junior high even, um, but I'm not sure if they dated in high school or they, if they met later. Maybe, I, bet it was, I bet it was quicker. I kind of wondered if maybe they met when she started working for the family business. Oh, I bet you're right. And that's how, you know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I couldn't find anything on that. Number three is a relationship. So now there's what's called coercive control, which is very, uh, can vary among abusers from some, for some it's an assault for others. It's threats. Others will humiliate and intimidate. They might use other abuse to harm, punish, or frighten their victim. The controlling behavior is designed to make a person dependent by isolating them from support exploiting them, driving, uh, depriving them of independence and regulate, regulating their everyday behavior. So this is where they can't buy groceries without them there. They want them to quit their job. I mean, there's just all kinds of Stay stuff. Stay away they'll from do. family. Yeah. Or they'll listen to the phone <coughs> conversations mm-hmm. with the family yeah. and then later they'll make them stop talking to them. Mm-hmm. Number four is triggers. Now, this is a threat to the perpetrator's control, like the relationship ending, which Bonnie was doing. Or financial difficulty, which we saw with several family annihilators. Right. Um, It says, I think uh, for sure, if I look at this case, there's number three and there's number four. There's a coercive control where Mm -hmm. he'd use anger, et cetera, to scare her. Then he was triggered when he found out she was going to leave. So the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's leaving. They say that that's why, but she did the right thing. She had some knowledge because she was... Hiding money, mm-hmm. preparing, which they say that's what women that are battered should do. Yes. Slow, don't just leave. And how he found out, I'm not sure. I wondered. They say at Her this parents. point, the abuser will either move on and let the lady go, or 
He'll try to gain his power back, even if that means killing her. I would think letting her go would be a very low percent. I Well, it says here in 45% of intimacy partner homicides is at the separation that the murder occurs. Yeah. Then the next one, number five, is escalation. This is an increase in uh, intensity or frequency of the partner's control tactics in an attempt to try to regain control. Some behaviors uh, one might see to get control back is begging, crying, threats of violence, violence, stalking, or suicide threats, which sometimes that can make people feel like they're really needed, unfortunately. Like, right, I'll kill myself if I can't have you. Yeah. Well, women especially have a... I don't know. It's built into them to mm-hmm. fix somebody, help someone. Yeah. And they're nurturing. Yeah. So they're not going to, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, no. I well, need and to they stay believe and I need too. to help and yeah. I need to change his mind. Then number six is a change in thinking and decision. This is, again, where he'll either move on, get revenge, or kill her. What's very interesting is that there's usually a, quote, specific period where they make the deliberate decision to commit the crime. And they plan it all out. They frame the decision as rational, as a rational and justified response to how he thought he was treated by her. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then the final two are planning. Now they're going to get the weapons. They're going to seek the opportunities to get the victim alone. And then finally the homicide where they will either go after the, the partner or their children. I'm not sure he planned this, so. I'm to not me, sure. it's like more they got in a fight, a heat of the moment. And then that's probably why it was second degree murder versus first. Right. I think most probably agreed with that. Here's what I'm learning, though, in researching all these cases. So we have the last season. Then we have this season where I've researched um, 10 cases. Often, there's no violence at all. Really? Yep. That's why like it's... Like often? It's, yes. Yeah. Just psychological. Mm-hmm. There'll be gaslighting, love bombing, okay? But often there's no physical violence. And so if a woman is looking for physical violence to be an indicator of danger, she might actually be in more danger than she realizes. Well, it didn't seem that he had was physically violent, except that one. When he slammed her hand but in the then door. then he kills her. Yeah. So from one extreme to the other. That's what I'm saying. It's like I was shocked at the fact that there's a lot of times no violence whatsoever. In fact, we have a case that we'll be doing on on Kelly Clayton this season where she there was nothing. There was nothing. There were no clues and uh, no violence. That's so crazy. that's why I wanted to read these, because I wanted people to hear you know, some of the seemingly romantic, mm-hmm. innocent beginning, but that they might actually be signs. And uh, so, you know, as we go through the season, we'll look at that list several times and try to see if we can find anything in there. But again, if it moves too quick, if there's a profession of I love you right off the bat, if there's any of those things like that where you don't have time to step back, process what's going on, is this a person for you, there might be something going on because it really isn't normal for that. You know, like, for example, 
when I moved to Clovis and Mike first saw me, he went home and told his wife or his mom, I found my wife. So he knew he would marry me. I don't think you had the same thought. I didn't. But what was interesting is he didn't pursue me at that time. He just patiently waited. You know, he didn't like love bomb me. He didn't get, you know, like he didn't do any of that stuff. So that's what is, you know, maybe an early indicator. And if you see that, maybe that's a good time to get a background check, kind of see if there's any history and maybe even call a couple of past girlfriends. I'm glad you did the eight uh, warning signs because I've heard many times on these podcasts, well, he didn't hit me. Right. Well, because when I was younger, when you thought of abuse, it was physical. It was always physical. Now, Mm -hmm. there's so many signs, but back when I was growing up, it was it was just physical. And I think that's what a lot of ladies maybe do is they dismiss some of these things because they think, well, he's not hitting me. Therefore, he's not physically mm-hmm. violent. And as we'll see through a lot of these cases, a lot of them had no idea whatsoever. Well, I'm glad the son had some kind of closure, if me you call too. it that. Me too. All right, so what do you think of this black Stella Rosa? I mean, I'm looking over there, and you've had two glasses. One and a half, and it's very good. Good choice. And I can't believe you didn't like my joke. You have a whole... I'm your child. You should fake laugh. Well, someone asked me once, Stephen did, he said, you know, because I watch a lot of true crime, if me or the girls, your girls, you and Elena... Mm Mm-hmm. Say robbed a bank, killed someone, and we needed help. Mm-hmm. Would you help? I said yes. Mm-hmm. I would call the police mm-hmm. and have them come get you all. <laughs> so don't look for me for taking your side. I know it's been I a year. I can't believe you stole. Oh yeah, I was a stinker. Mm-hmm. That was just a little bit of We're my life. A good thief, though. I'm a little proud because you had a hundred and something. Never got caught. 130 to be exact. Well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Yes. Kids don't so do you're that. Of, don't you're do proud that. of me for being a criminal, but you don't laugh at my jokes. That's a little bit weird. Do you remember our saying after a year? No. Be smart. Be rude. Don't be a victim. Yes, I did remember. No, you didn't. I know it. (laughs) Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? (laughs) 